So at the outset, I wish to say that we're a very privileged congregation in that week after week, we're blessed to sit under healthy teaching that is wholly grounded in the Tanakh, in the Torah, the Torah, the prophets, the writings, and most importantly, provides the profound connections to and wondrous new understandings from the writings of the Berit Hadashah in a context that wholly upholds the fact that all Jewish and therefore Messianic learning is for transformation, being, doing, and living. This is part two to the profound disciplines of Daniel's sermon given a few weeks ago, which was intended as a punctuation mark sermon in the series on the book of Daniel that we're currently benefiting from. I'm going to attempt to read the message of this sermon into the fabric of our being again this time. Hence, you have a full copy of the sermon to follow along. The strategic reason that I chose to use this form of delivery for these two sermons is simply simplice. Simplice is a Greek noun that can be translated interweaving. In classical antiquity, it was used to refer to the manner in which the oral delivery of a speech was interwoven into a written version of that speech. When read aloud, it was held that the hearers experienced an interwovenness with the tapestry of the text, such that composition and community became woven together, producing the desired outcomes expressed in the speech. This is my 21st century aim. First, I wish to say Tadarabah, which means, thank you very much, to everyone who either texted, emailed, or spoke with me personally in the days and weeks following part one of the disciplines of Daniel. While some found this reading of a sermon somewhat unusual, most stated that they benefited from following along as the message did get into the fabric of their being. The sermon was also sent by some to family and friends around the U.S., such that we also have reports back from Georgia, Virginia, and New York. Some, inside and outside our congregation, have reported that they are starting their day with Modeani. I give thanks before you, living and eternal King, for you have restored my nefesh within me with compassion. Great is your trustworthiness, faithfulness. Some have reported that they are experiencing a profound difference in their life by disciplining their bodies to address God as the living eternal king while their head is still on their pillow in the morning, which is the proper posture from a de'ani. Some have reported that they were further moved by the fact that the Siddur instructs those who say Moda'ani to have a lion-like resolve to serve God this day. Some have reported moving towards or immediately adopting the three times a day structured prayer time. I, in fact, had already adopted the three times a day structured prayer discipline earlier in 2015 and have used my phone alarm to cue me when it is time to pray at noon. There is hardly a noon that goes by that reciting the prayer that Yeshua taught his disciples that we discussed in detail in part one doesn't immediately ensure that I regain sight of the fact that I'm living in the reality of the kingship of God in Messiah and am equipped to represent and manifest it in whatever I find myself responsible for at work or in the empire today. And some couples among us have also reported praying together for the first time to start and or end their day. And others among us have also reported other advances 
in the practice of this most profound discipline of prayer, Tadah Rabbah. Moreover, there's been a development in my own house. I call it the Adon Olam effect. As my wife was praying and studying the prayers in the Siddur, the Adon Olam effect spontaneously emerged. It works as follows. When I call her during the day with breaking news from either the New York Times or one of the many reporting agencies in Israel, or even from inside our own circle of congregations, families, and friends, hi, honey, it's me, your husband, the one whose heart leaps like a gazelle when you answer your phone, I have breaking news. And then I fill her in on the usually devastating report of something terrible that's been said or has happened without flinching. The Adon Olam effect immediately occurs, and she says, Oh yeah? Well, here's some responsive breaking news. And she usually goes directly to stanza two and says, And at the end, when all things cease to be, the exalted God alone will still be king. He was, he is, and he will be forever glorious. Quite a responsive form of breaking news, yes? No matter who has reported what, the validation has come that a more profound practice of prayer, overcoming the make it easy, make it quick, make it short spirit of the age, leads to more profound results. Let us not be robbed of more profound results by falling short in this area. Let us continue to discipline our bodies and lives to pray robustly. Let no one outpray us. Second, I wish to remind us there's always a profound opportunity right before us to go to the next level, to scale the next height. According to 2 Corinthians 3.18, this transformation from one level of glory to the next in Messiah is accomplished by means of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. And we talked about next height of what in part one of this series. Next height of engagement of God in covenant love relationship height of what it means to be in Messiah and walk in the Spirit, height of our practice of engaging God in prayer in the structured three times a day practice mentioned in the book of Daniel, as well as every other type of spontaneous prayer that can and should occur at any time of the day it's desired or needed, height of our appropriation of the Ruach HaKodesh. And by appropriation, I mean ensuring that we take full advantage of the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh to produce profound results in our personal and communal life, especially with respect to the fruit of the Spirit in our living, something we'll discuss this morning in more detail. Height of our practice of engaging God in the Word of God, the Scriptures. Height of our vision and participation in the kingship of God and our representation and manifestation of it in its inaugural form in Yeshua to the larger Jewish community and the lost world in which we live. Height of a whole of your heart, whole of your nefesh, whole of your capacity, way of being that represents and manifests the way of the Lord, being unique as God is unique in the nitty-gritty of everyday life. Third, I want to emphasize that the very foundation of this way of being is profoundly expressed in next week's Torah portion, Parashat Vayera, at Genesis 18:19. For I have chosen him that he may direct his children 
and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. How? By doing, by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. It is profoundly reiterated in the prophets at Isaiah 30, 21, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. It is profoundly reiterated in the writings at Psalm 139, 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. It is profoundly validated in Messiah in the four canonical accounts of the good news in which each of the four authors, Matityahu, Mark, Luke, and Yohanan, cite Isaiah 43 in their announcement of Yeshua. A voice is crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. However, it is Yeshua the Messiah who shows up, both to make the way of the Lord clearer and to act as the ultimate suffering servant of Israel in order to enable us to walk in the way more profoundly by following in his footsteps and appropriating the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh. Walking in the Ruach HaKodesh is in fact the messianic way to fill full, a very strategic wordplay on fulfill, the intended meaning of Torah. And although the account of Mark 12, 13 and following is about some Pharisees and Herodians trying to trap Yeshua into saying something anti-imperial about taxation that would get him arrested, notice that they ironically say that he truly teaches the way of God. This is most profoundly validated by the fact that the earliest Messianic Jews that is to say, Jewish followers of Yeshua Messiah were known as a separate sect of Judaism, the sect of the Nazarenes, Acts 24.5, and referred to as the way, Acts 24.14. And Shaul Paul, a prominent Pharisaic Jew whose allegiance was to that sect of Judaism with the reputation of excelling the rest of Israel in the observance of Torah, and in the exact interpretations of individual laws, defended the sect of the way as being the ultimate sect in which the Jewish people may serve the God of their fathers and be in accordance with everything written in the Torah and the prophets, while looking forward always to the coming resurrection, Acts 24, 14 through 15. Let's allow the scriptures to make something very clear to us this morning. And that is that we are addressing holistic practices or disciplines that are part of the Messianic Jewish and Gentile way of being and living. They are not vague and solely spiritual practices. They involve the whole of our person and especially our bodies in being the way of the Lord. Moreover, based on our study of Daniel, they must start from the time we are children. If that didn't happen, just start now and continue to be developed in profound ways for the rest of our lives. And as emphasized last time, we cannot merely repeat year one over and over again, or we will remain like children all of our lives. Fourth, let me emphatically state that from the perspective of Judaism, rabbinic or messianic, 
There's no separation between transformation, worldview, the disciplines, and the way of living. We see this in 1,100-year-old iteration of rabbinic Judaism in the explanation of Musar. Here I have decided to quote from the clear and insightful explanations of Alan Marinus, the founder of the Musar Institute and author of Everyday Holiness, the Jewish spiritual path of Musar. However, note that the Hebrew word Musar, as found in the Tanakh, had a range of meetings from discipline to training to exhortation long before this focused use of the term developed 1,100 years ago and became the modern Hebrew word for ethics. Musar is introduced by Marinus as the Jewish way of transformation, worldview, disciplines, and being living as God intended. It's the path that shows us how to realize our highest potential in the way of the Lord by engaging the specific curriculum of our life via transformation, worldview, and the disciplines. By curriculum, Marinus means a specific set of patterns, behaviors, or issues unique to each person that one is going to have to work through in the course of their life in order to suffer less, cause less suffering, and make their unique and highest contribution. Sound like transformation? That's because it is. Moreover, it takes place on the path of challenge that leads to authentic growth. Ultimately, Marinus rightly and profoundly describes Musar as circumcision of the heart, which is totally validated by the context of Deuteronomy 10, in which such circumcision clearly reveals what God required of Israel. To fear, revere the Lord their God, to walk in all of his ways, to serve the Lord their God with all of their heart and nephesh, and to keep all of his commandments and statutes for their own good. In profound demonstration of God's covenant love for Israel, Marinus rightly highlights the fact that Israel had two choices regarding this circumcision of heart. One, responsibly do it themselves. Responsibly do it themselves. Deuteronomy 10, 16. Or two, have God do it for them after they suffered curses for not walking in all of his ways. Deuteronomy 36. The intent was for God's people to cooperate with him in covenant love relationship, experience profound transformation, experience a profound change in worldview, be unique as I am unique, and practice the disciplines that would lead to the fruit associated with the way of being living that God intended for humanity. We see the same connection between transformation, worldview, disciplines, and the fruit associated with the way of being living that God intended for humanity in the almost 2,000-year-old iteration of Messianic Judaism expressed in the Berit Hadashah. Here I've decided to quote from the clear and insightful explanation of the Pharisaic Messianic Jew named Shaul or Paul from his letter to the Romans, chapter 12, 1 through 2, which I have translated interpretively as follows. I therefore exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, unique, and pleasing to God, 
which is your only reasonable, responsive form of service or worship based on all that I have written. Do not, as a matter of habit, allow yourselves to be conformed to the age in which you live, but allow yourselves, as a matter of habit, to be transformed by the renewing of your mindset, worldview, so that you might rightly conclude what the will of God is, what is good and well-pleasing and meets the highest standard. Interestingly, in order to do this and be able to make one's ultimate contribution to the people of God and the world, one had to, among the many other disciplines, follow the imperatives in the preceding chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans. This included being co-crucified with Messiah, co-buried with Messiah, and co-resurrected with Messiah according to the new covenant proleptic, that is, foretaste, provision, available through Messiah Yeshua's work as the ultimate suffering servant of Israel. Moreover, Romans 8 makes it crystal clear that this is accomplished by appropriating, maximally taking advantage of the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh. One of the most profound benefits of the new covenant inaugurated in Messiah Yeshua is the fact that we no longer have to be slaves to sin and unrighteousness. We can be restored to God as the living, eternal king instead. We can present the members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness, justice, and we can experience the transformative gift of the Ruach HaKodesh in such a manner that the righteous requirement of the Torah is filled up unto the fullness of its meaning by no longer walking according to the actions of the evil inclination the Torah was against, but according to the Ruach. Fifth, then I wish to emphasize the appropriation of the Ruach HaKodesh as the next discipline in this series. Most important, when it comes to taking full advantage of the transformative gift of the Ruach HaKodesh, is that we allow the Ruach to transform from within us all of the characteristic actions associated with the evil inclination listed by Paul. Sexual immorality, impurity, depravity, idolatry, sorcery. Note this list now moves to interpersonal relations, hostilities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish rivalries, dissensions, factions, envying. Now back to murder, drunkenness, carousing, and similar such things, which Paul expected his hearers to be able to fill in the blanks on. Paul then added an even more sobering word. I'm warning you, as I warned you before, those who habitually practice such things will not inherit the coming kingship of God. If we cooperate with the Ruach HaKodesh and profoundly practice the other disciplines in place of this list of actions of the evil inclination. We are promised that we will see the fruit of the Ruach. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness or trustworthiness or covenant loyalty, gentleness and self-control. Against which type of things? There is no law. Paul then added an emphatic word. And those who belong to Messiah Yeshua have crucified the evil inclination with its passions and desires. If we contend that we are living by the Ruach, 
then let us also order all of our steps by the Ruach. Let me suggest that this is the most important starting place for understanding of the appropriation of the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh in our lives. Notice how much of the inability of people to love each other, get along, and live together in the world would be resolved by this one practice. Next, we might consider Yeshua's own words as he ascended to sit down on the right hand of God to initiate the kingship of God and send the Ruach. He told his Jewish followers that their focus was not to be on when the fullness of the kingship of God would come to Israel in the Alam Haba, something only known by the Father, but rather on the fact that when the gift of the Ruach was given, they would receive power to be as witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the remotest part of the earth. They would bear witness to who he is, that he has come, and that the kingship of God has been inaugurated in him. The day of small things beginning of the restoration of Israel that was powerful enough to begin the outreach to the nations. Here the Ruach compels me to echo the words of Zechariah 4.10. Who has despised the day of small things? Despising the kingship of God in its mustard seed form is the surest way not to experience it when it comes in its fullness. Let the hearers read Zechariah and understand. There's much more to be said about the appropriation of the Ruach, but unless we are those who respond like those in Acts 19, that they didn't even know that there was a Ruach, then I leave it to the Ruach and your reading of Scripture to fill out the rest of the meaning of appropriating this transformative gift as a discipline. Another main outcome of this appropriation would be our investment in the community of Messiah according to how God gifted us. Let's just be sure that our starting place is the transformative process that produces the fruit. A necessary footnote here is that the profound level of transformation, worldview, practice of the disciplines, and way of being living that we observed in Daniel from his youth, from a teen, all occurred prior to the pouring out of the Ruach HaKodesh on that special Shavuot in the first century based on what Yeshua accomplished on our behalf. Yet outsiders reported that Daniel had either an extraordinary spirit or a spirit of the gods in him. Is there, it is therefore not theological fiction to say that we can attain to more than Daniel attained. Six then, the last discipline that I wish to address in this particular series is that of engaging the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Bible, and it is clear that Daniel was a man of the Word of God. Here I first wish to tie together our previous discussion of transformation, worldview, disciplines, and way of being living, and connect it to the reading and study of the Scripture by sharing a paraphrase and expanded by me words of a Christian scholar, David K. Noggle, from his book, Worldview, the History of a Concept. It's a mouthful, but worth getting into the fabric of our being. For a variety of reasons, perhaps a bits and pieces mentality, or the inability to make the theolog theological connection between the earlier and later scriptures, the Tanakh, 
and the Barit Hadashah writings, or a highly injurious or destructive dualism that divides life into the airtight compartments of sacred and secular. Contemporary biblical understanding among everyday persons who profess Messiah is subject to extreme forms of reductionism. A comprehension of the overall biblical story and its constituent components is lost upon the minds of far too many in the community of God. There is precious little understanding of the broader horizons of the scriptures. When it comes to the faith, many well-intended persons understand it in limited terms as a church view, or a spirituality view, or a religious view, or a God view, but not as a comprehensive, all-embracing, holistic world and life view that is demonstrated by action. But the notion of a comprehensive biblical worldview has a mysterious way of opening up the parameters of the Bible so that we might be delivered, rescued from what? A fishbowl-sized perspective and outcome. Into what? An oceanic-sized perspective and outcome related to our way of being and living. Such an oceanic size, perspective, and outcome on this way of being living connects the earlier and later scriptures, unifies biblical theology, furnishes the background for the particulars of messianic teaching and practice, and provides a narrative context by which Jews and Gentiles, one and Messiah, can establish their identities in community. Such an oceanic perspective shatters a multitude of dualisms and reductionisms and replaces them with a biblically-based wholeness that appropriately unifies what? Time and eternity, body and soul, faith and reason, sacred and secular, and earth and heaven, resulting in an inner confidence, spiritual freedom, and the ability to delight in creation and enjoy the totality of life. I share this to emphasize how important it is for us to have an oceanic size, holistic, whole of our heart, whole of our being, whole of our capacity strength approach to transformation, worldview, all the disciplines, and ultimately our way of being living. Thus, seventh, I wish to draw serious attention to my description of the Bible, the scriptures, as the word of God. This emphasis has been eloquently expressed by Jewish scholar James Kugel in his book, How to Read the Bible, A Guide to Scripture Then and Now. Listen, Scripture is, in one sense, the opposite of prayer. Words from God rather than to God. But it makes the same connection. What Kugel is saying is that in the same way that engaging prayer is engaging God, Engaging the Word of God is engaging God. This is a critical perspective and outcome of our worldview and way of being living. From the very opening words of the Torah, the Bible or Scripture can and must be understood as the Word of God if it's going to be read and studied properly in a discipline of engaging the living God, experiencing formation and transformation, and finding ourselves being or living as God intended. Perkei Avot in the Mishnah 5.1 states that by ten words, 
the world was created. It refers to the ten occurrence of the words, and God said in Genesis chapter 1. A very careful analysis of this reveals the inseparability of word and action, word in action, and word as action. In Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments are actually referred to as the Ten Words. In Deuteronomy 8, an explanation is provided for the whole way that God led and tested Israel in the wilderness to determine what was in their heart, causing them to feel dependence on Him by humbling them, causing them to experience serious hunger, and feeding them with manna in order that they might learn that what? Humanity does not live by bread alone, but by every utterance of speech, a parallel to word in Genesis that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. In the prophets, the phrase, the word of the Lord, and the classical formula, Vayahi Devar Adonai, classically translated, and the word of the Lord happened to me, is everywhere. Sam Meyer's favorite translation. In the writings, Psalm 119, the acrostic masterpiece of the Psalms, says it so eloquently. Should we look at it? And they all cried, yes, may it be so. Can he, how can a young person keep their way? By keeping it according to your word. Your word have I treasured in my heart. For what reason? That I might not sin against you. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Establish your word to your servant. The list is on the screen. All the way down to Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. What if we read the whole psalm? It would be no own egg. How does it close? What's the last use? My tongue, sing of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. I challenge us to milk the marrow out of this psalm and see the connections between word and action. It's about doing the word. Like David, Psalm 119 should be the profoundness of psalms to us. Oh, how I love thy Torah instruction way. That's David. Where is that found? Psalm 119. In the four accounts of the good news that start the Berit Hadashah scriptures, we find everything from the word of the kingship to commandments as the word of God to the whole of the good news as the word to the profound personification of the word of God in Yeshua the Messiah in Yohanan John 1. In the book of James, Yeshua's brother, who echoes Yeshua's Sermon on the Mount, exhorts his hearers to receive the implanted word with humility, which likely refers to the realization of Jeremiah 31, 33. I will place my Torah in the innermost part, and on their heart I will write it. He then exhorts his hearers to be sure they become doers of the word, not just hearers who delude themselves. The connection between word in action, word in action, and word as action is undeniable here. In the homily to the Hebrews, we find the following two profound statements among the profundity of words in that book. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, dot, 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 able to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart, which most directly refers to the fact that God's word spoken through David today 
if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. A word directed to the wilderness generation that lives on to this day while it is still today to be acted on. Because God is living, his word is living and active and able to address the people of God in every time period. I have intentionally left out Paul and Revelation here for purposes of finishing in our time period. But I think the connection between word and action related to the word of God is clear from these examples. Here, while I hesitate to recommend yet another book about Scripture, I think we would all do well to read Richard Briggs's Reading the Bible Wisely, an introduction to taking Scripture seriously. While the whole book should be read from cover to cover, chapter 10 introduces us to a very profound understanding of how word and action come together in the Scriptures as the speech acts of God, and therefore as the Word of God, and how we may be formed and transformed by our reading if we properly engage the Scriptures as the Word of God. Chapter 11 is then further focused on how Scripture forms and transforms the reader. I'll have more to say about that momentarily. I now wish to close by the identification of three major problems related to the reading and studying of the Word of God, the Scriptures, and three proposed solutions to these problems, hoping that a potential fourth problem, that is, not reading and studying the Word of God, the Scriptures, is not to be found among us. May it never be, God forbid, oy vey hagadol. Thankfully, the reader understands. Problem number one is the lack of understanding of Scripture, the Bible, as the living and active Word of God. It's associated with an old idea that we have to read and study the ancient Bible and then apply it somehow to our lives as if it were not already applicable as the living and active Word of God. To borrow from Shaul, Paul, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Solution to problem number one is to allow ourselves to be transformed by the renewing of our worldview about Scripture so that we truly view it, read it, and study it as the living and active Word of God. Here, we're following the sagacious instructions of Richard Briggs, who acknowledges the immense gap that separates the ancient world of the biblical books from our 21st century world, but who also knows what makes the best bridge between those worlds. Rather than attempting to transport mere principles from the Word of God or make applications of what we have read to our own lives in our own time, Briggs has found the more excellent way as adapted and expanded below. Approaching the Bible or Scripture as the living and active Word of God is the key to engaging the living God in His living and active Word. As the living and active Word of God, Marcus Bachmuehl rightly declares that we have to face the non-negotiable, formative, life-shaping, transformative, life-changing, and self-involving investment demands that the biblical books place on the serious reader. Because all of the writings of the Word of God involve word and action, word in action, and word as action, readers of any biblical book are to invest themselves in that book in a discipline of personal and communal involvement as members of the people of God, 
who expect to engage God in the book, be formed and transformed by what they read or study, and receive insight into how they might maximize their being, doing, living in relation to the way of the Lord and Messiah. According to Briggs, the closest thing to this approach is the Word of God in liturgy. In this comparison, we find that Scripture as the Word of God is not just saying something to us, but is doing something to us. In response, we then become doers of the Word. In the new observational Bible study course at Beth Messiah Congregation, we will discuss this in greater detail. However, note that the normative, formative, and transformative principle that's in operation here is found in Psalm 1, in which the persistent encounter with God's self-revelation in the Torah forms and transforms the one who invested themselves in the text in such a way that their life becomes like a tree planted by streams of water that produces fruit in its season and has leaves that do not wither. Is this a description of us? The, the example that Briggs uses to make his point is the reading of Matthew 6, 14 through 15 in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. If you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your offenses. Concisely considered, to forgive, one must reconstruct the world in their relationship with the offender and with God. By learning this ability, I am remade in my involvement in the act of forgiveness, remade to be the kind of person who forgives others and is forgiven by God. If I'm not willing to invest in the text, it will not transform me. And then I'm back to wondering if or how I will apply these words of Yeshua. Problem number two is the problem of a bits and parts approach or only ever reading little portions of the Word of God. This prevents us from ever understanding the overall biblical story and how its component parts from Genesis to Revelation all fit together in an inseparable whole. The solution to problem number two is to establish the discipline of reading the Word of God through every year. For, for very good reasons, I haven't done it in a while, but my wife does it every year. This is separate from Bible study. The value of becoming familiar with the one continuous story of Genesis to Revelation is inestimable. Software, like all of Tree Bible Study software, with annual reading plans to choose from is highly recommended. Let me demo mine that I just started after re-rolling of the Torah scroll. Please accept our challenge this morning to everyone in our congregation to start reading the Word of God through from Genesis to Revelation every year. Whether you start today, tomorrow, or at the start of the new calendar year. If you don't use software, annual reading plans may be downloaded for free at a host of sites. Howard specifically asked me to demo my plan. You can download this. A simpleton like me with no technical skills can download this. You can pick the plan you want to do. You can name it. Look, it's called Henry's One-Year Plan. 
only 10 days in, but look where I am. You simply click on continued reading. It brings you to where you left off. You simply read. Now we're done. You simply hit done. And now it keeps track of where you left off, and tomorrow you pick up your reading again. Olive tree. If anyone needs help, we're there for you. I'm always startled at how my wife knows all the stories and where to find them all because she reads the Bible through every year so much more frequently than I do. I plan to change that this year, starting with the re-rolling of a Torah scroll. As you can see, I'm many chapters ahead. Problem number three is a lack of or inadequate study of the Word of God and its component parts. Its component parts being books as wholes. The soundest method of study of the Word of God requires that we first become familiar with the book of the Bible as a whole before we read smaller portions of that book and attempt to understand them. The solution to problem number three, in part, is to welcome BMC's new free observational Bible study course. It has been written at a very easy level and in a very easy and engaging format in order to take the discipline of Bible study at Beth Messiah Congregation to a whole new level. The solution to problem number three also involves accepting our challenge this morning to select one book of the Bible this year and study it in detail from start to finish with a solid resource or two to assist you to understand and to respond to that book on its own terms. The kind of resources that we recommended in the Mark course and in the current Good News According to Matthew course. Rich resources, deep resources that get at the entire Jewish heritage of those books. Many of us will make ourselves available to assist you with the course, resource recommendations, and your study. And here's a preview of that observational Bible study course. Do not say when I have time I will study. Perhaps you will never have time. Hillel, you'd almost think I picked that. He's reading Deuteronomy called the fifth book of Moses on his page. Studying the Bible is engaging God. We open with quotes from Kugel and others. What is observational Bible study? See the level it's written at? A quote from Abraham Joshua Heschel. Four basic steps of solid Bible study. Prayer, observation, interpretation, formation, and transformation. All laid out step by step. Oh, doesn't that look childish? Yeah, unless you become as children. A word of caution. And then a detailed guide of every step. Howard is the first one that wants to teach the course. We talk about being on the observation deck on top of the Empire State Building first in order to get an overview of New York City. Then one can proceed down to the ground level to explore New York City in detail, its parts and the relationship between those parts. And we use that to say, reading a Bible book several times is like remaining on the observation deck on top of the Empire State Building for a very long time making sure one truly gets the big picture first. That's our preview. Let's pray. So living an eternal king, we thank you for the extraordinary privilege of on our pillow in the morning reciting Modeani to address you as living an eternal king. We thank you for the ways you're moving in this congregation to lead us into a more robust and profound prayer life so more profound results and living and effects are among us. We thank you for that extraordinary three times a day practice of prayer and pray that you would rescue us into Daniel's practice. We pray for a profound and robust appropriation of the Ruach HaKodesh 
that all kinds of things would be rooted out of us and we would be the covenant partners in covenant love relationship that you have always longed for. And we ask right now, as we lay ourselves before you, that you would bring us to the newest and most profound place in our understanding of what your word is and what happens when we read it and why we should study it. Bless everything that has been done to help us in this regard and make us that which you wish us to be in your 21st century history. And this we ask in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen.